Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. WBZ, you're Jay Tucking. We're live midnight to five. And uh, as you know, if you're on social media at all, or if you listen to the show at all, this is your big day for history, Boston history. Oh, Anthony Samarco is in. I, how do you do, Anthony? I'm very well. How are you? I am very well, too. It's going to be a little different tonight. It's not going to be about Boston history. Well, we're going to include a little bit of Boston oh, okay. history in Sicily. So oh, right, of course, of course. Many Sicilians actually have made Boston what it is. Before we get there, though, let's catch up. It's been a month. I, I know. Gosh. You you told me that you have four books in in place to be done in the year 2020. Well, three in 2020, but the one that's actually going to be coming out this fall is East Boston Through Time. It's by Fonthill in London. It's a photographic history that Peter Kingman, the great photographer and very good friend, is someone who's actually done the photographs. Um, I'll be editing it next week, I heard. And then for 2020, we've actually signed contracts for th- two, three new books. The first one will be Jamaica Plain Through Time, again by Font Hill. There'll also be The Other Red Line, which is a book that's uh, Washington Street, which connects Scully Square and, of course, The Combat Zone. That's being written in honor of a man named Bradley Jay, who made the suggestion for this book. So it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be something. I can't that, contain my excitement. Well, I think you're going to be quite happy with it. You know, Scully Square was a little bit more tame, and Combat Zone was a little more salacious. But Washington Street was really the the strip, so to speak, that was not only department stores and places of entertainment and things of that sort, but it really did connect those two areas. And then the third book is actually going to be Thanksgiving Traditions in Boston. Uh, That's going to be big, a big one. I'm kind of surprised that it's not already been done. Well, I think it's advantageous in 2020 simply for the fact that next year is the 400th anniversary of uh, the settlement of Plymouth Plantation by the Pilgrims. 400 years. 400 years. I know. It's incredible. I think in a lot of ways that book, which is in the same vein as Christmas Traditions in Boston, is something that... We'll not only have photographs about, you know, how we celebrated um, not just Thanksgiving, but also the basic aspects of the pilgrims themselves. And then in the 19th century, the different things that actually arose, like Lydia Maria Child with her ditty over the bridge and through the woods, which was Thanksgiving dinner at her grandfather's house. But we'll also touch upon one chapter, which is called Thanksgiving Cheesecake. 
And in that instance, we see many of these movie stars of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s usually dressed a little bit risque with an axe and a you know obliging turkey looking up at them. So it's a kind of a fun book, but it's also something in a lot of ways that we realize the Macy's Day Parade was something that was always on Thanksgiving Day here in Boston. It was something that was not just Macy's, but it was the progenitor, Jordan Marsh. So it's something in a lot of fun, you know, that I'll have fun with, but it'll be a fun year to do. Each one of the books gets a little easier because you've amassed so many photos that you can you have this personal archive, right? Well, I do. I collect everything I can find. Anything on Boston that's u- unique or interesting. Um, I look at not just eBay, but I also go to paper shows, ephemera shows, and I also buy private collections. And these are things in a lot of ways that I will use in a book, but it's also the fact that they're preserved. Everything is usually given to the University of Massachusetts. They have a special archive, and it's in Healy Library, and it is something in a lot of ways that is available for anyone to utilize. So one might not think that, say, the Howard Johnson collection would have been as well used as it is, but they get requests from across the country. So it's not just my research, but huge amounts of photographs, not everything which I could use in a book. That's great. You do great service collecting that stuff and and letting them use it. Um, All right. Now, you are a son of Italy. Let's talk about the Sons of Italy a little bit. Well, I am. I belong to the Renaissance Lodge, Sons of Italy, which was founded about 30 years ago. I was one of the founding members. Our president is Dr. Dean Saluti. And the Sons of Italy is something in a lot of ways that in the early part of the 20th century was something that was an alliance of Italian-Americans, both native-born Italians that were living in Boston um, or the United States, But the other thing was that they actually were the children and grandchildren. And it was something that was a beneficial type of a thing. It was a fraternal organization. And throughout that period, it was a major feature. So when it started in Massachusetts, there was the Grand Lodge of the Sons of Italy in America. And the Grand Lodge is the lodge, and then there are also benefit-type lodges throughout not just Massachusetts, but we are also... Uh, New Hampshire. And I think in a lot of ways, the Renaissance Lodge is a fun group of people, and we do different things. We've also been the spearhead to a book that I wrote called The History of the Sons of Italy in Massachusetts. came out a couple of years ago and benefits the Sons of Italy. But we're also doing a series of things with the Lamarca family, which is something that would actually be a small timeline of Italian-Americans in the Boston area that have made an impact on the quality of life that'll be in the uh, lobby of the Sons of Italy in Belmont, Massachusetts. But it's also something in a lot of ways that's not just something of Italian-Americans and the descendants of our ancestors, but it tries to do you know benevolent things. We raise money for different charities, and it's something in some ways that kind of extols the virtues of from whence we have come, but how we've integrated in some ways and contributed to American society. You mentioned that uh, there are many Italians that have had an impact on the Boston area, so let's go that way now. Well, this is the interesting thing. A lot of times when I teach at Urban College of Boston, and I also teach at Boston University Metropolitan College, I talk in great detail about the immigration to Boston. It's a major impact in the 19th century, and one of the major changes that how we saw Boston not only embracing people of European but Mediterranean cultures. 
And the surprising thing is, not just Italy, but Sicily especially, we saw many people coming to the New World. Well, one of the movies that I always recommend is uh, The Golden Door. And The Golden Door was about a, an agrarian Sicilian family that you know, not only wanted to immigrate to the United States because it was a hard scrabble type of life in Sicily, but what they went through on the travel to the New World and when they finally arrived, and they arrived in the land of milk and honey. And one of the things at the very end of the movie was that all of the people who were the stars of, the, of this movie were floating in milk and honey. And it was, the analogies were wonderful. It was all these stereotypes of the land of, you know, not only they were paved in gold, but the gold coins fell from trees and all of these things. And it was something that many people in Europe believed at that time. Well, Boston, which would embrace from the 1840s on various ethnic groups, um, beginning in the 1840s with the Irish and the 1850s and 60s with German immigrants and later by German Jews, Russian Jews, and Italians, we realized in some ways that Boston's North End would have various places of worship. And, you know, one of the things was the North End was a place that wasn't just this Italian-American community as it's become in the 20th and 21st century, but in the 19th century had temples and shoals as well as Roman Catholic churches. And the funny thing was, beginning with the Irish, who would establish St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church, which no longer exists, it was a place of worship for the Irish. Later, there was St. Leonard's Church, and that is the church that the Ginellis and the Samarcos, my family, would actually belong to, that was established in 1872. And it was primarily people from uh, the Naples and Avellino regions. But then there'd also be the third church, and that was Sacred Heart, which is at North Square. It's still a church that is opposite the Paul Revere House. And that was primarily the Sicilian church. So you know, even though it was a Roman Catholic church, there were places where people would be more comfortable, so to speak, worshiping with their own comrades, so to speak. So, so we, you know, being outsiders might think of all of Italy as feeling kind of the same, but they don't. They don't. I mean, there are different regions, there's different foods, there are different spices, but there's also a subtleness of a different culture in many ways. I think when we look at Boston, we realize that we're Bostonians, but who was a Bostonian in the 21st century may not have been a Bostonian in 1900, let alone 1800. And I think we have to realize that overlay of what our families have contributed to making Boston as diverse a place as it not only is, but will be in the future is something that's been impacted by many, many groups. And of course, it's Italians. And I think in Italy, we realize in some ways that the Italian-American culture has evolved in a very different way. Um, <laughs> many people do not eat spaghetti and meatballs <laughs> in Italy. Um, neither do we. But the idea is that it's something in some ways that there are these stereotypical perceptions. So food is different. Spice, as I mentioned, Pastries are different, but so too isn't the fact of even the topography. And you realize in some ways that Sicily, which is partly a UNESCO site because it's so perfectly preserved, it's an, almost an agrarian culture except for the major city of Palermo, you realize in some ways that these are places that people have come from and they bring their 
cultural traditions and they interweave it with the American culture. Are the Italians that came to Boston associated with any particular uh, employment? The Irish are associated, rightly or wrongly, with being a police person right. or a fire person or firefighter. What about the Italians? Well, in the 19th century, even the Irish, let alone the Italians, were people that came from an agrarian culture. So, of course, whatever they could, it was either the raising of animals and livestock, um, crops and things of that sort. But when they arrived in Boston, many Italian-Americans went into the fruit and produce industries. And my paternal grandfather, Luigi Samarco, was a banana specialist, and he was somebody who had been with United Fruit, and he was well-versed in the many different varieties of bananas. I never knew. I did not know that. <laughs> well, you know, we always seem to have Chiquita bananas at the supermarket, and that's wonderful, and that's a yellow banana, but there are red bananas, finger bananas, plantains, and things of that sort, and he was really quite adept at that, and they always had a, a variety of bananas on their um, table, especially for dessert. Bananas in the nineteenth, uh, late 19th and early 20th century were a rarity and a great traditional um, treat that were given to children along with citrus fruit. So when I think sometimes many of them were, of course, not just fruit specialists, but bakers, as well as bread bakers. La Marker is a great example. Prince Spaghetti was actually something in a lot of ways that was started by La Marker and would later be you know, made into a multi-million dollar company by Joseph Pellegrino in the 1940s and 50s. But you also realize in some ways that these are things that are part of our culture today that we think of and we have, maybe it sounds trite, but the spaghetti and meatballs, that the spaghetti might be made by Prince, but it could be made by a multitude of other things. There were at least five different manufacturers of pasta in uh, Boston in the early 20th century. So when I do these lectures and I talk about the ethnic overlay and we talk about the contributions in this instance of Italians, we realize Boston itself, you know, might not realize how much of a contribution Italian Americans have made to the society. And in that instance, it's something that not only is a magnificent tourist destination or many people returning to their family roots to see the village from which the family had emigrated, but I think in some ways it's also something of what they've actually made into a new world. Speaking of pasta, you're a, a food person. Yes. You make your own pasta, correct? We do. Okay. I, I have attempted it a few times at, at, with mixed success. Can you give me your version of how you do it and any tips, any things you learned along the way, the do's and don'ts? Wow. It's interesting. I, I do eat store-bought pasta as well, especially when I'm here at the Boston house. There's not a lot of food to eat. But if we're at the Cape and we're to make, say, egg noodles or something of that sort, we have fresh eggs from the chickens. Um, they seem to be very obliging as of late. But we'll actually use semolina flour, a little bit of water. Do you um, buy the fancy, more expensive flour? No. Okay. No. We might add a little bit of semolina. We always have Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Variety of flowers. But the thing is, it's like King Arthur's flower. And okay. We'll simply add water to it, maybe an egg. and You do the little volcano. We do. And you put the egg in we and do. you yes. fork it in and fork then you we work knead it, it. Work it with our fingers. Okay. How long do you let it rest? Then we'll probably put it into plastic and let it rest for a half an hour in the refrigerator. By allowing that to happen, it's something that's a little bit denser and more coagulated. Roll it out, and then we have, I hate to tell you, in the uh, in the pantry, there's probably four different pasta makers. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll roll it out, and we'll roll it out again and again and again, and we can either make noodles or we can make uh, capitale. We can actually do... Um, all sorts of different designs. I like to have fun with it. How much I mean, is a decent pasta m- machine? Well, they can be quite expensive, but I caution people, you don't always need to buy it new. I like to go to these consignment shops or these thrift shops because sometimes you can actually purchase them for 4 or 5 or $6. Oh. And they are f- perfectly They're perfectly fine. fine. Because a lot of people don't make pasta as often as we do. My uh, it, my my pasta tastes great and it has a good texture. The only thing is, it tends to lose its shape when it gets into the water. Right. Uh, any you're, idea you're right. what may be going wrong? There? You're probably adding a little bit too much moisture. That okay. might be the water. When I was a very young child, my maternal grandmother Rose Janelli Samarco would actually make pasta fresh on Sunday mornings for Sunday dinner. Mm. So when we were going for dinner, we would arrive probably around 11 o'clock, and then we'd go to visit family within the neighborhood. And we would sit to dinner, and there was always a soup, and then fresh pasta. And when I would arrive at 11 o'clock, there was a clean sheet on her bed, and on that were laid out probably five pounds of pasta, having been made fresh that morning. And it was something in a lot of ways that I used to think as a child. I took it for granted, but it was also something with, and we did call it gravy, but um, most people refer to it as sauce, but we would have that with a red gravy and then the meat afterwards, and then there'd be a roast or a roast chicken and then cucumbers and salad, and then there would be all sorts of different things from nuts and fruits and my grandfather's bananas, but the idea was pasta was something that was integral and it was part of the meal. But it's easy to make. How long do you immerse it in the hot, hot water? I, because I, I, only like 60 seconds? Well, no. Because it's freshly made, um, it would take less than two to three minutes. Okay. And it's usually when it floats to the top. When we use dried pasta, something one might purchase at a supermarket, it would take anywhere from sometimes 10 to yeah. 12 minutes. I think I might be overcooking it. Yeah, I think one thing is, you know, you have to be realizing very fresh pasta is something that takes no more than three minutes. But there is a tremendous difference, not only in texture, but flavor. And it's kind of fun. But when we go to Italy and also to Sicily, combined with other ingredients, because everybody seems to always have it with a, a red gravy or a red sauce here in Boston, you can combine it with fresh seafood. You can do it with olive oil and yeah, herbs. So olive oil and garlic is yes. just by itself. And that was something that we'd always have on Christmas Eve because it was something that 
had to be um, non-meat. So we would always have the garlic and oil. And that is quite delicious. I think in some ways that many people look at Italian food as something that is special and, you know, it's the type of thing you have when you dine out. But we try to have it at least two to three times a week. It's very healthy, but it's also very fresh. And you get exercise making it. The, oh, the kneading of the yeah. dough or, yeah. it kind oh. of tires me out. Well, look at how thin my fingers are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, one other observation about the food. Uh, you mentioned that bananas used to be a rare delicacy. I want to point out everybody that, and I think about this a lot, every time I go to Trader Joe's to get a banana, we take bananas for, for granted. They're a healthy, good food. They're 19 cents each. It's un, they're the deal of the century. Well, it's funny you say that. I collect cans. You know, I never throw my cans away, and I redeem them. And I always say to people, that's my banana money because I buy a hand of bananas. Now, do you ever call it a hand of no, bananas? No, but I will now. Yeah, well, Give I me do. a hand of bananas. Exactly. I go out there and I say, oh, look at these. These are great. This is a nice hand of bananas. And that's thanks uh, to my grandfather. So you have been to both Italy and Sicily a lot. I, we do. We usually go in the fall of every year. and It's the most perfect time, September and October, in my estimation, it's usually extremely warm in the summer. Yeah. Um, because of the winds that are coming from Africa, one realizes that Sicily and very southern Italy itself is something in some ways that is tremendously hot. And I always say to myself in some ways that it's nice, but it's also the fact they have cooler evenings. But in September and October, oh, it's my very favorite time. Because I think it's, I think it's inter interesting when you choose to stay in Rome. Tell them about your... Well, in Rome, we always stay at the same hotel, and it, it sounds maybe very trite, but it's the hotel forum. The forum overlooks the Italian forum, and it's this wonderful 19th century hotel and very elegant and Murano glass chandeliers and sconces and very nice suites and things of that sort. We can actually walk either to the Colosseum, we can walk to the forum. So the, the forum is... Seven, five-minute walk away from where you stay, or or zero-minute walk zero. away. Zero. I mean, the windows look out on the floor. That's incredible. I would like to take some of these pieces. I see the same piece every year, and I think to myself, oh, wouldn't that look nice in the garden in Osterville? But we're across from the uh, Church of St. Cosmos and St. Damien, and we always go there. We have a mass set for members of the family. And you have to realize Rome is a place that is not just a tourist attraction. It's also a place where people live. So we are more the type of a people to actually try to go out and have coffee or, you know, a pastry in a neighborhood mm -hmm. that is something where people really live. We also like to immerse ourselves in, you know, how people not only worship but also how they basically live their daily life. So I'm always in a supermarket and things of that sort. But the Hotel Forum, the entire top of the hotel has this wonderful restaurant that overlooks all of the ancient sites. But on the very top is the American bar. That's <laughs> <laughs> a roof, roof deck kind of stuff. It's a roof deck, and it's small, but the wonderful view. The Do they have Grey Goose and Queen Olives? They most certainly do. Okay, good. We have to find a place that <laughs> if actually... If they didn't, you wouldn't <laughs> be there. Well, it's usually absolute for me and also uh, Jameson okay. for Joe. All right. But it's a wonderful view. So we're there at least, you know, a week every October. 
but we might travel. Then we might go down to San Donato, Val de Camino. We were in Naples, and from Naples we can take the ferry to uh, not only um, Istria, but we might even go to um, Capri. Capri. And Capri and Anna Capri are two of the most wonderful places, and especially with the olives and especially the lemons, creates a, a nice juxtaposition. But when you go to Sicily, after having been at Capri, Istria, or even Italy itself, you go to a, an island that's almost self-contained. Parts of it are under UNESCO. It's a place that has Mount Etna, which is one of the magnificent volcanoes that constantly seems to be smoldering. And then you have a culture that's arisen around it from ancient times. Right, and there were different occupants historically in Sicily than Italy, correct? Yes, very much so. I Even mean, though we think of it as one thing today. From one, one of the things that I've actually, and I always love these tours, you know, the things that actually just don't just point out the buildings and everything, but talk about the, the demographics of not just the recent past, but back to like 10,000 B.C., yeah. And you begin to realize in some ways there were Phoenician traders, there were Greek trailers, uh, traders, there were African traders, that not only the islands were interconnected by trading boats, but it was also something in a lot of ways that Sicily arose in some ways as a culture that was a combination of all of them. It also had Germanic rule. It was partly the Habsburgs. It was under Spain. And you began to realize that in by the 19th century, it all had affected its architecture, its food, and its spices. And sometimes the spices in Sicily are far more pungent and aromatic than you might find even in Naples. And the food itself is even sometimes a little bit different. But I was always surprised that there are some of these wonderful Greek temples that still survive in Sicily. And you look at them and you realize um, there are various temples in Segesta that are almost as if they are in Athens. And the ancient ruins of that period are things that you begin to realize that have affected the people of Sicily today. We have Paul in Braintree who wants to join us. Hi, Paul in Braintree. Say hello to Hi, how are you? Anthony San Marco. I hope we have a good line. It's a little scratchy on my end, but I hope you can hear me. Yeah, yeah the uh, – I was – of Sicilian descent, the um, uh, Sicily in many ways is is the Poland of the Mediterranean. Everybody conquered it on the way to somewhere else. Um, but you're right; the the whole cultures. Um, there is a uh, uh, one pasta dish, and I'm sure Anthony is probably familiar with it, pasta con sardi, and it is uh, um, it's a combination of of uh, uh, I guess uh, sardines of I think uh, um, uh, different different herbs and uh, I haven't had it for a long time. I want to say citron, but that may not be correct. But it's always topped off with um, toasted breadcrumbs, right? Yeah, which is really unusual. Uh, it's probably an acquired taste. Actually, you can buy it in a, there's a yellow container uh, in in some Italian specialties. Stores, but you're right. the The pastry is different. But as to the how's the, pa the, how the may I ask, Paul, how the pastry is different? Um, I I, I 
Well, the caserta you know how cake. it is different. I can tell you what, what they have. There are, there's uh, something called, sadly, Maria's in the North End closed uh, early in September, which was probably on Cross Street, one of the best Italian restaurants for, uh, pastry shops for uh, a, a particular pastry I liked called Sfogliatelli, which is, I think, means many leaves in Italian. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it looked like... Look like shredded wheat. I hate to say that, but uh, if you ever got there when they just came out of the oven, it was an entirely different dessert. It was softer, but it, it was filled with uh, uh, like a sponge cake and an Italian cream. Yes. Uh, there is, of course, the cassata, which is um, very uh, you know, full of uh, citron, and uh, so a lot of different uh, fruits, I guess, are used in Sicilian pastry right. uh, that that you probably wouldn't find elsewhere. But I, I just wondered if I can quickly refer to my, my grandfather, who died long before I was born. Um, we, I always thought that he came from Sicily to to run a bank, but it turned out that he it was uh, from New York. Uh, and and, and uh, the family tradition says um, it was a, um, a division of uh, Bank of Italy, Bank of America, that, he, uh, that Giannini set up. And the building is still there, and it was called... The Sicolo Express, and it, I have a picture of him standing in front of the bank in New York. at 4 North Square. Oh, in North Square, And that's yes. right on the corner of Garden Street. What's that? Yes, exactly. There's a photograph of that in the book on the North End that I wrote. Yeah, right, and on uh, Stephen Puglio's book. Um, I, I know I gave him a copy. And the um, uh, if you look closely, you can almost like a Gibson girl posters in in the uh, in the window but apparently it was like a precursor to like an american express and of course there were you know there weren't any protections for uh uh you know bank failures back then right. and so i think one of the earlier depressions uh, it, it eventually eventually closed um and um i think he had contacted rheumatic fever in the Italian army as, as a young man. So that really affected the rest of his, his life, which I guess was shortened by it. Oddly enough, you talk about mixed cultures around the corner on garden street is where Rose Kennedy was born exactly. uh, in, in the same connected building. So that the, um, uh, it is, it is a mixture of cultures, but uh, now uh, we've, we've tried to, to determine whether there was, I think they know if you look in, uh, in the picture, it says Sequel Express. It says Palermo, Boston, Chicago, uh, Naples, uh, the, the many, many cities around the country. But I guess they, you know, they uh, sadly did not survive. Thanks, Paul. I actually have to break uh, now. I appreciate you checking in. Thank you very much. Checking in with us. It's WBZ. So you can talk. Yes, I can. I will and I do. Bradley J. When you listen early in the morning, Jay talking. You are locked up to WBZ. WBZ News Radio 1030. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Turn on your radio. You've got me listening to this. Turn it on. Bradley J. Oh, you're a smooth talker. You are. You are. This is 
Jay talking. You talk the talk. Do you walk the walk? WBZ News Radio 1030. It's WBZ. We're with Anthony Samarco talking a little bit about uh, Sicily and Italy in the uh, connections to Boston. Now, the. Well, the previous caller. Previous caller mentioned some sort of. Uh, pasta dish. Pasta dish that uh, has uh, breadcrumbs and citrus. Well, the funny thing is, the every year the Sons of Italy, uh, the Renaissance Lodge, will host a St. Joseph's Feast, and it's at La Suma Restaurant. Barbara Suma, you and I had dinner there, and she really put on a very lovely dinner for us. But we go there on March 19th, and one of the dishes, I mean, it's like a 12-course meal, but one of the dishes is a pasta with uh, orange rind and, of course, breadcrumbs, which I hadn't had. But it was actually quite interesting. It was delicious, but it was very different than what we think of for pasta. But, you know, he also brought up the caserta cake. And one of the things about these things was these were preserved fruits, citron, raisins, things that actually had shelf life. And if you combined it with a little bit of, you know, egg and flour and things of that sort, it was something that could make a delicious cake. But these were things that are less sweet than we think of when we actually have Italian pastries in Boston. So whenever we're in Rome or we're in you know, Naples or we stay in San Donato a lot, um, the pastries themselves are less than half sweet. So I'm always a little bit astonished. You know, When you think of looking at it, it says, oh my God, it says sugar, sugar, and then you bite into not it. Not as sweet it's as you think. Not as sweet as you think. I had a nut cake for my birthday one year, which I thought might have been, you know, like glazed marrons and things of that sort on the top. It wasn't sweet at all. And I was like, gee. <laughs> so we haven't talked about your experiences in Sicily. Can you talk about uh, towns and places you've been there and what they're like? You, you, you can be the Rick Steves of Sicily for, oh for right now. Oh, my God. I wish I was as good-looking or young as he is. But anyway, the thing is, when we would go from the mainland, we take a ferry. It's, it's what, four miles, I think, from the toe of Italy across to Messina. And the boat ride is adorable. I mean, it's a small place. You know, it's everybody seems very happy. A lot of people just go back and forth. Do you take your car on the ferry? We do. And it's a rental car, of course, from Rome, but I I probably put on two to 3,000 miles, it seems, whenever we go anywhere. But getting into Messina, which is kind of a big city, so to speak, for Italy, you would think in some ways that it would be something that would be you know, quite rural or agrarian, but it really is quite nice. And Messina has not only hotels and places along the waterfront, but wonderful restaurants. So we always stay in Messina at least a day or two, and then we do little date areas in and around it. But Palermo was the capital of Sicily, and Palermo was really the largest of the places. That's pretty far away from from Messina. Well, you know, when you think of Sicily itself, Sicily is probably the largest province of all of the Italian provinces, and it's huge. So it might be, you know, half a day, not quite a half a day, but a half three a day hour drive. drive. Three, three to four hour drive. But Palermo also has some wonderful architecture. And a lot of the cathedrals themselves have almost um, a Viennese Baroque interpretation because of the Habsburgs. A lot of people don't realize that 
under the rule of not only the Habsburgs, but eventually what became the kingdom of the two Sicilies, which would eventually become the unification of Italy to create what would be Umberto and uh, Victoria Emmanuel, the kings of Italy, you realize that Sicily itself was something that had been conquered since ancient times by many different cultures, and each one of them with the different overlays. I mentioned to you earlier, and I also put this on Facebook, Cefalu, which is one of the most well-preserved places in all of Sicily. Ancient buildings directly on the water. So not only do people live there, but they go about their daily business, but it's become, again, a tourist attraction. Yeah. See, I couldn't judge ahead of time which places were touristy, too touristy for me, and which weren't. So I just had to guess. And I guessed wrong a couple times. I was curious about, you call it Cefalu, that's how you say it? Yes. How did that rank on the it's very touristy or not scale? Well, I'd say probably a five out of a ten. But then the thing was, in the very early morning or after the late afternoon when people seem to dissipate, that's when you really begin to understand what these towns or villages are all about. In the early evening and then basically at dinner time, you kind of see people going about their business, um, you know, fresh fruit stalls, fresh vegetables. So is this close enough to Palermo so people take the day trips over there and then they leave? So right. at exactly. night, it's exactly. it's uh, relatively untouristy? Just like, like, a, like, Cap- a, like Toledo is to Madrid, they'll go over well, and leave. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just like uh, Capri. I mean, once the last ferry leaves, so to speak, then it becomes that wonderful ancient place that everybody seems to love. But I think in some ways, you know, Sicily has all of these different impressions that people have of not only a built-up city, but then you have the agrarian culture. Then you have the ancient ruins that might go the gamut from ancient times right through to the period of, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 to, you know, the present. And it's this overlay that basically creates in some ways what Sicily is all about. The food is something that is, to me, one of the most important because I like to always try the different things. Now, normally, I buy Italian olive oil. And I was at the supermarket the other day, and I found this Sicilian olive oil. And I thought, how could it be different? So I bought it. And it has a much more rich and pungent oil really? flavor than the normal brand that I buy. And I kind of enjoy it. So a lot of times when we're there, we will have something that might be such as, um, oh, I don't know, um, octopus. And it might be something with a simple rice or a simple pasta. Would I eat octopus normally? No. But on the other hand, in that instance, it was served, and it was absolutely delicious. Speaking of the Sicilian olive oil, I wanted to bring a can of it back, but I didn't think I could because of the airlines. You can't bring liquids. But uh, I'd like to get I wish I'd brought a can. I love olive oil in cans. I do, too. I bought a gallon can. and Would you ship it back? No, I bought it at the supermarket here in Boston. Oh, oh, what supermarket can you get a the Ital- the well, Sicilian. This, well, this was Market Basket. It was oh. at the uh, Sagamore Bridge. Okay. And I do my shopping on Friday afternoons on the way to the house in Austerville. But I bought this, and it said Sicilian olive oil. So, of course, when I got home, the first comment was, 
this isn't what we usually buy. And I said, no, I thought we'd try something a little different. And I used it the next day when I was cooking. I love to cook. And Saturdays, of course, I cook a little bit, and then we have our dinner. But on Sunday morning, I feel like I'm my grandmother reincarnated. I will do everything from mushrooms and peppers, and we'll make pasta, we'll make gravy. And, you know, it sounds weird for two people, but the dog does have a bite or two. <laughs> but it's the type of a thing that, you know, these are the things, the flavors that will add to it. And the spiciness sometimes of the Sicilian food is a little bit different than one might find in Naples, a little bit more... Um, red pepper or hot red pepper, um, the spices, because you have that Tunisian overlay, because you're so close. What are you, it's like 100 miles from the African coast to Sicily? I don't know. So you have this. That is interesting. Yeah, you know, you have these different aspects in the ancient times of the trading, but the spices were things that could be used. And I always think sometimes what is the flavor I'm tasting and many times it'll be cardamom that'll be in something or we'll find a mace or even saffron that you don't always find on the mainland. So it's the type of a thing with olives, lemons, fresh fish, you know, and of course shellfish. We haven't talked about sardines, which we I want at some point. I guess it's a good point to get it into sardines. Did Can't you? get sardines around here. I went, kind of went there for the sardine culture. And uh, they served them in so many ways. Uh, I was a little shocked. I expected, what I expected was similar to Greece where you got about three good-sized sardines roasted. But, but instead I got a plate of teeny little, Tiny. teeny little like bait fish, maybe two to three inches long with the bones and everything still in them. Right. You just had to eat them. Just go for it. Well, you, you can strip the bone. Uh, Oops, I didn't know that. Well, I ate a bunch of bones. Well, it's good calcium, I suppose. I, yeah, it was just a plate well, in the, of little teeny fish. In the Italian culture on Christmas Eve, of course, it's a meatless. It's a holiday. It's a day of obligation. And we would always serve smelts. And the smelt would actually have the spine removed, and you would eat it that way. Sardines are served in the same way. Sometimes I think smelts and sardines are things that we don't necessarily have here as often as we do in Europe. But one of the things is Bostonians always had alewives, and alewives were a similar type fish. So when we're in Portugal or we're in Italy or we're in Sicily, a plate of sardines is something in some ways that it's always there. But roasted sardines, something that's very simply done on a grill. Anthony Samarco, once again, if you haven't met Anthony, and if there's anyone who hasn't met Anthony, you probably want to do that. You could take a crack at that Sunday, uh, October 13, 2 p.m., Forest Hill Cemetery, Visitor's Circle. You're going to be there. You can meet, They can meet you. By all means. And... Uh, Tell him I said hello. All right, it's WBZ. Thanks very much, and thanks for the new to the new callers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.